Hey guys, and welcome to season three of the Us People podcast. I'm your host, Savia Rox, and in this season, I get to make my guests laugh, cry, and even make them think about life a little differently with the questions I fire over to them, which digs into their lives and professions a little differently. We even had a chance to change up the intro, giving you a fresh new sound. I look forward to sharing season three of the Us People podcast with you. Let's go. Hello, I am Mitch Hall, and I am a thankful guest to Sabi Rocks on the Us People podcast. Made up my mind, now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Ask Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Sally Rocks, and today I am extremely humbled to have Mitch Hall here with me. Mitch does quite a few things, and I want to name them all because every single one has resonated with me before we even started recording. So, Mitch is a holistic health and well-being counsellor, does yoga, tai chi, is a meditation teacher, writer and editor. Mitch... Thank you so much for giving me the privilege to have you on the Ask People podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Savia, and thank you so much for the privilege of joining with you. <laughs> it's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. So, Mitch, my first question for you is, could you tell us, and, and I really do look forward to this, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? where you came from, where you grew up, what it was like growing up, but also how that influenced you to be the person who you are today. Wow, that's a big question. And I saw you place one hand over your heart center as you asked me to talk about this. So I was born in the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the very end of 1942. Now, the city of Philadelphia was founded by Quakers. In fact, Pennsylvania was. It means Penn's Woods. And William Penn you know, was a Quaker. They all came from England, of course. Um, and um, they, they believed in nonviolence and peace. And it, the, the word is derived from a Greek word that um, means the city of brotherly and sisterly love, you know, the city of yes. friendly love, like, and, and, which you probably knew anyhow. So anyhow, I was born, um, my mom says that um, when she started feeling the birth pangs, she told her mother that she wanted her to call a cab to take her to the hospital. And, and my grandmother, bless her soul, may she rest in peace, fainted. <laughs> so my... <laughs> I could just see that. So, so the my my grandmother, by the way, had come from London. Um, oh. Although they were um, on the my mom's side, they were actually Jewish refugees from the Baltic state of Latvia, who had escaped oh. the pogroms from there, and then uh, um, you know in the late eighteen uh, hundreds, late nineteenth century, and then they. Some of them came to um, Philadelphia um, uh, in the early 1900s. So, so anyhow, so these were, you know, it was a refugee family. 
And then, so anyhow, there was a blizzard, uh, but somehow the cab got my mom to the hospital and I was born. And um, so I don't think my grandmother ever fainted because of me again. (laughs) 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 To my knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm (laughs) I'm a firm believer that sometimes the um, the medicine that we have to offer the world, the gifts that we bring, are also deeply connected with the, the wounds that we've also suffered, provided yes. that we have received the support for healing. There's a famous line from one of the... Um, poems of the Sufi poet Rumi, the Persian poet, I think, 13th century. You know, if I'm wrong on that, I know many listeners will leap on it. But <laughs> at any rate, you know, the line is often translated is the wound is where the light comes in, I mean, the spiritual mm-hmm. light. And I looked at several translations of that to try to understand the context. And it seems it's the wound that we suffer, you know, to to our sense of well-being, to our sense of wholeness, to our connection with the divine, to which spiritual healing has been brought. Um, So if that makes sense, yeah. And then there's a beautiful verse in one of Leonard Cohen's songs. And um, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So, <laughs> I see you nodding and smiling. So, you know that verse, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's often, you know, the little um, verse I have at the end of my email messages. Um, it's very meaningful to me as I, th- I think about life because, you know, we're all familiar with the concept of post-traumatic um, what is it? Post-traumatic injuries, post-traumatic um, stress, but there's also post-traumatic thriving. Again, provided that any individual who's had trauma has had the benefits of both um, helpful witnesses, people who who um, recognize the suffering, and and who also recognize beyond that the promise that's in the person. Yes. So this is. Um, and, and so, and, and this I'm giving as a message to your listeners and as a reminder to myself as well, for some of the work I do, that, you know, while we wish for a garden variety um, life, many of us have not had that for, for ancestral reasons, for collective reasons, for individual reasons. So I'm aware yes. that whatever my my values and my dedications have been in this life they're also intricately connect in, intric, in intrinsically connected <laughs> couldn't find the word for a second intrinsically connected to the wounds of our lives and how well we've more or less well because it's always you know we're unfinished products always in evolution i i would hope but how how relatively well we have um been fortunate enough to heal and to extent that we can be relatively healthy physically emotionally 
and also relatively influences for good in this life. So, but we need the support of others. So I've had support, I've had wounds and support. What were the wounds? Okay, so I was born at the end of 1942, World War II was raging in Europe, of course, um, yes. you know, and in, and in, and in Asia. Um, my, my mom's side of the family were Jewish refugees. So the Holocaust was going on. In fact, 1942 was the worst year for the, um, the massacres, the, the extermination camps and so on. Uh, and it wasn't only the Jews, it was the Roma, it was socialists, it was people with disabilities. I mean, I want to honor the memory of all those who have suffered and, and, and feel solidarity with them. And that's been part of my path too, is I've, I've always felt from very early on, I questioned the divisions among people and thought, we're just human beings. If I look exactly. in anybody's eyes, I just see another human being. And then if I looked into myself, since I had this sort of mixed background, since my birth father, whom I didn't even get to know until really later in life, and which, I'll which is one of the wounds. But, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, because there was a lot of prejudice of Christians against Jews, Jews against Christians when I was growing up. Jews weren't even, not even considered white back in those days. Now they're kind of amalgamated. But I just questioned the whole thing. So wound number one, my mom, unbeknownst to her, he, she had been with my dad, my birth dad, and he was some you know, an executive. I won't go into details, but um, he sent her back with her to be with her parents, where uh, so she could have the child. He said, and then he said he would send for her and me to go back down to where he was, and then um, he didn't do that. And then she got curious, and after, when I was a few months old, I think she left me with my grandmother. And uh, she took a train from Philadelphia down to um, the Red Cross camp at a military base in, um, in the state of Georgia, where he was the executive director of the Red Cross camp for the soldiers. And she walked into his office. So this is my mom's wound that then, of course, as a little infant, I became, I think, her, her source of, you know, her, her cheerleader. I mean, I had to yeah. cheer up the depressed and shocked mom. So she went there, went into his office. This is an early wound. And um, she, uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm getting into this story, but what the heck. You asked where I come from. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to the very, 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 very beginning. <laughs> so um, she said to her secretary, I'd like to see, you know, and she said his name. I won't mention it. And then um, secretary said, well, who are you? And she said, I'm his wife. And then the secretary's jaw opened to drop. She said, there's something you could see, you should see. And she had the key to his office, I mean, his apartment on the on the Red Cross base and then opened it. And my mom saw the evidence that a woman was living there. And then she had been very naive. She had been in love. She was younger. You know, he was educated and she thought he was handsome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyhow, this is the big, you know, she, she must. So she came back and eventually, the, you know, she filed for divorce. They got it and so on. But so then I, my early months must have been spent with a grieving mother. I mean, I know they were. And grief yeah. is really intense if anyone's been through grief. I mean, it's a profound human experience, but it's so intense. So I think part of the why I developed sort of, I'm a, I'm a very much an empath and very sensitive. Part of it was yeah. as a little baby, I had to figure out, you know, how do I get this woman to, <laughs> to smile? <laughs> Because I, I, I've been through enough grief in my life, I know how bad it can get. 
So, <laughs> so, so I've been a helper from early on in life. <laughs> I won't go into further details now, but that's part of the wellness counseling gift already. So my father was Christian. My mother was Jewish. This is all, you know, the crazy world we're living in. Because again, we're all human. We all come from yeah. the same source. We all have ancient, ancient ancestors in, in Africa. And it's just this incredible migration and adaptations to all kinds of climates and everything and, um, you know, conditions. But we're, we're genetically, we're also close. We're even close to the, the bonobos and the chimpanzees. In fact, all life on Earth we're so close to. It's true. <laughs> genetically. It's true. So anyhow. My mom was, you know, working as a secretary, um, and um, by the way, she had been a very, a really good student in school, and even won a citywide essay when she was um, in high school. Uh, uh, and I mean, citywide competition among all the high schools where she wrote, and she wrote a, on what are the causes of war, and. and um, she she found it was greed. Well, I mean, that was, you know, one, I think it's still one, a valid answer among many, yeah. but at any rate, it's, it's so way more complex than that. But at any rate, but she never got a chance to go to college. The family was poor. Uh, you know, um, both my grandparents had worked. My grandmother had worked in sweatshops during the Great Depression, etc. So anyhow, my mom had worked as a secretary, and I guess she wanted to get married again. So she, she met a guy from another city called Detroit. And um, she thought she'd please her parents by marrying him. And here's wound number two, I would say. So okay. wound number two was more directly experienced by me as a young, conscious kid. Uh, so she got remarried, and I had relative security. And my grandmother was really the stable, the person who cooked my meals. And who was, my mom was out working a lot, and, you know, and she was tired in the evening. So I, I, was, I, had, a, I had like two mothers, my grandmom and my mom. And my grandfather, uh, he was a little, you know, he he was a good guy, but he was, um, <laughs> he was not his story. He just, he was a little absent, a little distant. And, you know, it was my, so I was kind of primarily made, raised by these women at that point. And then she married an Orthodox Jewish guy that she barely got to know and took me away from my stable home in, in my grandparents' house where we were living to Detroit. The man was a fanatic. He was a racist. He was physically abusive to me. He was very punitive. His mother lived upstairs, and, and she dominated too. And it was a night. I wrote a whole story about it called My Year in Detroit. It was only in second grade. So I was a, I was a little tiny kid. So, um, and my mom, I think, was so traumatized that she, she went into, you know, state of shock or something i don't know and 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 she sometimes i mean he would i didn't i was a good kid i didn't do anything harmful but if i i won't go into the details now however i was very very badly abused and in the building so it was um there was a basement there were two apartments or, or flats on the first floor and then there was his mother's you know, ruling the roost apartment on the she owned the building the stepfather's wow. other so in the in the basement, there was an African-American woman named Lily. And because the stepfather was a really vile racist, I won't even repeat you know, his language, he never wanted me to ever go down there. But somehow I felt 
drawn to Lily. And my mom was not racist. She said, all people are the same. Bless her soul. May she rest in peace. And so when he was gone to work, my mom would let me go and hang out with Lily. Lily was a widow. She was an older woman. And she was, it was a rundown, you know, a basement flat. And she earned her living by taking in other people's laundry, washing it, drying it, ironing it. And I would just go down and hang out with her. And I would start, I had an imagination. I would start making up stories. And I felt safe with Lily, but I never Mm -hmm. felt safe within the, in the apartment, the flat I was living in. So Lily was one of my great teachers. You know, and may she rest in peace too. Bless her. She was one of my great teachers. Now, I was in so much trauma from being beaten, left in isolation in a, in a single room all day with no books, no toys, no radio. Radio. This is before TV, of course. And then I couldn't even eat during that time. I just had to stay in the room. And if I and he he always they would go out for a day, like a Saturday or Sunday, and he would say, if I come back and see you ever went through, I'll punish you more. And my mom was scared, but she didn't talk. She just, at one point, she said, don't worry, I won't let him hurt. He even threatened to kill me at one point. And he held me underwater once um, until I almost felt I was drowning. and it, it was really bad. So anyhow, so Lily was one of my teachers. And one day I was playing in the schoolyard at school, and I, you know, like little kids do, I fell down and, and my pants got torn. So um, I, I was terrified to go home with torn, you know, knee, you know, the pants, because I knew I would get punished for that, because I had to be like, perfect, you know, what kid is. So I went to the friend's, a friend's house, I pleaded with his mother, could you please sew these pants? So, so that uh, no one will see that they were torn. And she asked what's going on. I started telling her, she said, I need to meet your mother. And whatever that woman's name is, may she rest in peace. I don't even remember it now. I was a second grade kid. I remember her son's name. It was the same as mine. It was Mitchell. That's what we were both called. And um, she talked with my mom and persuaded my mom, you've got to take, you've got to get a divorce and take him out of there. So these were big wounds. This was trauma. I had to do years of psychotherapy. To... <laughs> Thank goodness for psychotherapy. <laughs> and I, I didn't get it until much, much later in life, you know, when I said, wait a minute, I never, and no one, back in those days, they were not the family, that they were not very psychologically, they just thought, well, forget about it and get on. No one talked with me about yeah. it. Um, but I, out of these wounds came what? I have worked with nonprofit organizations as an advocate for the nonviolent raising of children, you know, for yes. children's rights. I've done research on it. I've seen some research that connects um, uh, culturally widespread punitive patterns of child rearing with 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 uh, later tendencies towards societal violence and. You know, there's all kinds of research. I don't have time to go into it since it's a personal story, but I became really interested in that. But I became an advocate. I've even written uh, about the importance of this, you know, non-violent, raising children nonviolently. So that was came out of the wound. You know, would I have gone there? If not, I don't know. But I give thanks that I became sensitized to it. I also, thanks to Lily and this experience with a... Um, a very racist Orthodox Jewish stepfather. 
I decided I belonged to all of humanity, and they were they were as a as a you know again I we moved back to my grandparents. It was a mostly Jewish uh, sort of ghetto in in uh, northeast of Philadelphia, and all the kids I was playing with were going to get a bar mitzvah, and I was in Hebrew school uh, to learn that, but I decided I didn't want to do it. I just thought. I'm part of humanity. I don't want to be part of one tribe or another. I mean, I'm not saying it was right or wrong. It's just what I had to do as a kid to affirm me because I couldn't. Yeah. Well, what's this other half of me, this Christian father that, you know, I mean, this, I mean, I'm just part of every. And I felt as, I mean, Lily was one of the people who I felt actually safe and loved by. Sometimes she would take me by the hand when she'd go grocery shopping and I would just, and I would make up stories. I had an imagination. So that's, so these are, I'm just saying, so the, the wound is where the light comes in, provided we benefit from the healing. And for me, the healing has come through friendships, through psychotherapy, from, from creative writing. Like I wrote the story about this where it got it out of me and, and I shared it with the therapist. And, um, and, and now there's a whole book chapter that um, I collaborated on with. It's been published last year in a volume called Existential Psychology East and West, where a Chinese uh, psychologist interviewed me about the process of creating a story out of, I mean, a, a beautiful, in a way, I mean, it's a, it's a story where I could actually have distance from my trauma, which was a personal trauma, and, and, and do what she called, it's a Chinese concept called, a, translated as aesthetic savoring, where all of a sudden it has a shape and a form and there's a meaning to it that transcends the suffering of the time, you know. And, and then also she interviewed um, a friend of mine who's a poet from China who wrote a book about the first 10 years of her life, which was about a collective trauma because she was born at the very beginning of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And she turned it into yes. a beautiful poetic book called Little Green, which was about this collective trauma and how it affected her family. And she told the book from the eyes of a little child. So creativity, so therapy can help us heal. Creativity can help us heal. And also practices like meditation, yoga, tai chi, qigong, contemplative practices that bring about more wholeness, more integration within ourselves. So, I, And then nature. Oh, being with nature. That's one of the big ones for me, just to hike in the woods, to feel the communion with the trees, to know that the trees are giving me the oxygen, I'm giving them the carbon dioxide, and, and they're giving a lot more. There's all this whole new science of forest bathing. So I, I know I'm just riffing on various associations, <laughs> but anyhow, I like early it. wounds. There was one other. There was one other early wound. I'm a published writer. Uh, I'm still writing, and, and lately I've been writing poetry, even about my years in Africa and all, and I want to refine the poems now and get them published. Hopefully I'll live long enough to do that. I've had a lot of essays written, uh, co-authored book, co-authored book, you know, scholarly chapters and all. But the other thing that you should know is when I was in that second grade in Detroit, there was another wound that became a source of light and healing and strength. And medicine, so to speak, because I've been a teacher most of my career. So I was a traumatized kid. I didn't know that word then. My mom certainly didn't know the word. There wasn't much research on what trauma does to human development. I was having trouble learning 
to read and write at that point. Why? I was scared to death. I was, I, I was afraid when I would go to sleep at night during that year, that school year, second grade, I would literally put the covers over my head and fantasize that I was invisible so he couldn't come in and hurt me, that he would never see me. You know, like, you know, we, you know, superheroes have magical power. So <laughs> I wanted the magical power of invisibility. <laughs> this is how kid, part of how kids cope through fantasy. <laughs> so at any That's rate, the, the principle, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, we're resourceful. Kids are brilliant. Everybody yeah. is. And, and, you know, but given, given enough support and, and enough good for and i'm glad i didn't start my life in that household otherwise oh my god you know that would have been serious see it wasn't my birth father i had already had a few years of learning to adapt and be creative before that and then i had enough years after it but at any rate so i wasn't learning apparently and i remember a meeting where this school principal was a woman actually called my mother and me into the room and told my mother, your child is growing physically, but he's not going, he's not growing into, you know, mentally and that you can't expect anything from him. So basically she was saying, you know, I was, I would never have any intellectual promise. I mean, you know, mentality. So yeah. my mom said she refused to believe it. So every day after school, before the stepfather came home, she basically spent time with me teaching me to read and write and told me this message, which I think it wasn't original with her. Books are your friends. That was like a big message. Books are your friends. I was a lonely kid. I didn't have a brother or sister then. I never did. But friends were important to me. Books are your friends. So I became an avid reader after having been labeled like, you know, mentally deficient. <laughs> I can laugh about it now. So when I was back in Philadelphia in sixth grade, they gave early in sixth grade, all the kids, because this was the last year of elementary school back then, they gave all the kids standardized tests. And my teacher called me aside and told me that I had scored in sixth grade beyond college level with my reading ability. So I was already past college. It's because I love books, and the public library was like my temple. My, I would go yeah. and have armfuls of books. And I love summer vacation for many reasons, but one of them, I could read all the books I wanted without getting distracted by busy work for school. <laughs> so from a kid... <laughs> Who was principal told my mother, don't expect anything from him. <laughs> because I had some support, because my mom at least was able, I mean, because she valued reading and she valued stories and she valued good use of language. So um, fortunately, she devoted that time to me. She was traumatized, but she at least knew I needed that. She also taught me how to type when I was still in elementary school. And, and I said, why do I have to type? She said, you're, you're going to use it. You're going to need it. How many years now? I, I haven't passed a single day without typing. <laughs> she was right. And she, she had been a secretary. That was a gift of her. But at any rate, another thing that happened in sixth grade with Mr. Frankel. So he was another helpful witness. You know, I didn't have a father figure. 
uh, I mean, I didn't have my real father. I had my grandfather, who was a good man, and my our main connection with him was we would sit down once in a while and play chess, very rarely, but and he taught me how to play chess until I got good enough to beat him. So that was <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> so I have warm, fuzzy feelings around chess, even though I don't like competition too much. I just I don't care who wins. I just want to you know have fun. But anyway, what was I going to say? The wounds. Oh, yeah. So in sixth grade, Mr. Frankel helped me in two more ways. Like the surrogate teacher, father figure. Yeah, no, good. Laugh. It's good because, you know, I mean, <laughs> Mr. Frankel, uh, I had never been in, a, in an actor before. They were having a, the school play, and he invited me to become the, to be the star of the play. And I said, well, why me? You know, why are you asking me? He said, because you will be able to remember the lines. And it didn't even occur to me. Couldn't everybody? Or couldn't all the kids remember the lines? <laughs> but he, so he saw that in me. Back in those days, if someone asked me, will you go to college? I'd say, I don't know. I guess if I'm smart enough. Because none of the people who raised me had been to college. My, my, my birth dad had been a college graduate, but, you know, I wasn't being raised by him. So I didn't know, you know, people I knew, all the adults around me, they worked. And um, not in professional capacity. So at any rate, Mr. Frankel saw that in me, and he saw something else in me. I was kind of, um, you know, as I told I love to read, and... Um, uh, I was just drawn, I was sort of a gentler kid, but I, there were a group, the tough kids in class, the bad guys who were always making trouble. And Mr. Frankel once called me aside and said, Mitch, I see you think that you think you'd want, you want to be like them. You have something else they don't have. Just be yourself. And that's your message, Savia, that you, you told me right before we started. Just be yourself. Let it all come out. <laughs> So, yeah, and so that was so important to me that he he saw that, you know, I could remember the lines. He he did the reading. I mean, they all had to do it. It was citywide. But he let me know that my reading was so good that um, it was beyond college graduate level. I said, oh, my God. But I didn't. it didn't go to my head because I just loved it so much. I would read, you know, 50 books, 30, 50 books each summer vacation, even going into junior high school, which they used to call it junior high school, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. I would just, you know, after the end of the summer, I had all of these books that I read. And, and I, I remember the big day, I forget what grade I was in, in the public library I went to, there was a children's floor, which was actually on the second floor, and then there was the adults floor. And when I became old enough to go down to the adults floor, and all of a sudden, all these other treasures opened up to me. <laughs> so out of the early wounds, my devotion to human rights, to the equality of all peoples, my interest in exploring religions, because I thought, well, why are these people who say they believe in this God of love? Why are they hating on people who have a different religion if they all say they believe in a God? You know, that didn't make sense to me. So the dedication to protecting children's rights came out of the wounds, uh, a love of um, books and poetry and writing came out of the wounds. So, you know, and, and so 
And I know it's not hard, and some people didn't have the good fortune of a Mr. Frankel in school. And I also had a wonderful high school teacher, may she rest in peace, Miss Dorothy Sullivan, and my track and field coach in high school. And I kept, I loved athletics too. I mean, you know, I was not a super jock superstar, but I was okay. I was pretty good, but I enjoyed it. That was the main thing. And so here I am at 78, still teaching Qigong, yoga, Tai Chi. And um, I said, how did I luck out doing this? Because um, I think it actually keeps me, <laughs> keeps me alive, <laughs> keeps me still kicking. <laughs> so I lucked out. But it was my high school track and field coach. He was like a father figure to me also. He really took an interest in me. Um, may he rest in peace. So. I'm just giving thanks. And my mom, you know, she we, we had certainly, there were some issues there, but may she rest in peace. Her love of peace, her her um, her idealism, and she had a big interest in spirituality. So uh, beyond, you know, I mean, you know, she, she, she went and dipped into different spiritualities from India and, and elsewhere. So uh, there were books around, like the autobiography of a yogi, was, she had it there. And so anyhow, you know, I think a lot came out of that that I'm aware of and I'm giving witness to it. And so, you know, a lot of us, I mean, psychotherapy often is helping repair the attachment wounds from, from what was missing in early childhood. But it's also a way that we can discover the strengths that somehow if we've managed to survive, the strengths that we had to have had also. Because usually, you know, the human mind evolutionarily is geared toward what what's wrong. <laughs> and when we go, when we're hurting, we're focused so much on what's wrong, we can forget what's what's right. So when I do counseling work and everything, it's often I can give witness to people's strengths that they're not in touch with. Just as I learn, you know, inductively through how therapists help me get in touch with, with my strengths and, uh, <laughs> you know, and then also, if we can do practices, I mean, being in nature, nature can be a big healer if we are fortunate enough. I know a lot of kids grow up in cities where they don't even get much nature around them. It's just awful. We need nature. We we need sure. to be among other animals and you know other other species and and, and trees and plants. And the very air that we breathe when we're with the trees is actually much healthier for us than the polluted city air and so on. So we need nature. We need creative expression. We need people who recognize our unique gifts and talents. We all need that. You know, we no one gets there alone. It's it's BS about the um, self-made, you know, usually they say self-made man. BS. We're all here thanks to the grace of ancestors and friends. And <laughs> And all the rest. So I'm just, I'm just on a rant. I don't know. I hope this is okay. I love it. I I love it. I asked you one question, Mitch, and and you just took it away. And I was like, yeah, this is cool. This is so cool. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, you know, you have a you you have a very inviting presence, both in your voice and your face and your smile, and 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 your understanding of um how authenticity is it's just it's the only gift we have to offer one another is well the two get the empathy and with compassion and the authenticity and that's that's really 
healthy relation, healthy relationships, empathy, okay. authenticity, which and truthfulness goes with the authenticity. So anyhow, that's true. Your turn. <laughs> my turn. <laughs> It's my turn. <laughs> okay, Rich. <laughs> okay, so I have I have two questions, but the first one is. I know you've defined yourself as well. You've told me a lot about yourself, where you grew up, and how it was growing up. But how has gratitude played a huge part in your life? But also, how does unconditional love help change the way you think and feel about the world? Wow! Beautiful question. Well, in this very talk uh, that I was just giving, this bit of a monologue, you heard me give thanks to my mom, to Lily, to the mother of a second-grade classmate whose name I don't even remember the mother's name, to my high school, to my sixth-grade teacher, Mr. Frankel Herbert Frankel, to my English teacher from high school, Dorothy Sullivan. Uh, to my track coach, Royal Chernock. How's that? Six people already. Yeah. Maybe I. So, yeah. gratitude is so important. Again, it shifts our mindset away from focus on the negative, and on the on the half empty glass to the half full glass, or maybe even more than half full. But also just to be thankful for. Like as I, I even give thanks that I kind of seeking better balance in my own life because my education, undergraduate, graduate, and so on, was very intellectual, very um, you know words and books. But somehow, I used to love to dance, which was was always. I mean, I would I loved freestyle dancing and everything that freed me up. Oh, and for years I was doing African dance because I was so inspired by it when I was in Africa. I found classes back in the U.S. I took. Yeah, and then I wound up writing a book with an African musician who didn't speak English yet at the time, and he came and taught some classes when I was living in in Vermont, in the northeast of the U.S. and and I was asked to be his French English interpreter because I became fluent in French partly through my two years in Africa teaching in French in the Peace Corps, and and so I wrote a book with him where basically he told his story in French about thirty some hours of recordings and. He, he was his own oral historian. I just basically was his translator, who then had to do go through multiple edits of each chapter because the writing so darn hard. But, you know, so the book's been published since 1989 uh, in English. So at any rate, what? Oh, so I needed body-based things, and partly I think my enjoyment of track and field in high school and my my warm relationship with my track coach, who just died maybe two years ago, and we were actually in touch in the later years. Somehow we got connected through email and had a couple of phone calls, and I let him know how important he was to me. And then, um, yeah, and bless his soul, and, and uh, thanks so much to him, because he really cared about his, um, his student-athletes. But somehow when I, I remember the first time I did yoga was in New York City, And there was a guy with a long white beard, Swami Satchitananda, who had come from India and opened his first yoga institute. He became, you know, a guy with, you know, a lot of a lot of institutes all over and books and all. And I would go hear him talk in in town hall in Manhattan. I, and I was working in a 
in a, an inner city school with a lot of underprivileged kids. And it was, you know, it's a rough environment. It was stressful. So, and I was in a, in a relationship that didn't work out, but, but I'm, I give thanks to, um, that young woman who was my first wife, we went to Peace Corps Africa together and everything. And, you know, we had a peaceful parting, but you know, it, it just didn't work out. And so I was stressed out. I was teaching in this school and everything. And I remember the first yoga class I went to, and it was done a little differently from the way they usually teach it now, but there was a little mini rest between each asana, you know, each movement and stretching practice. And at the end, there was this big shavasana, this big, you know, deep rest. Oh my God, I felt so peaceful, you know, it just felt, it was just quiet. I felt so good. So that's, and then I got into the yoga a lot back then. And then, but then I was a young guy, I was in my 20s, so it was more about athletic, again, you know, how who could stretch the farthest. It was crazy. <laughs> it was more an athletic thing, you know, and, and, you know, pride, which is the opposite of what it should be about. It should be, it should be about <laughs> humility and service and, you know, becoming one, transcending the ego and becoming one with the um, divine and the connection with all of it. What the heck? So I, I got pretty good at it. <laughs> and it was during that, that year or two that I also first introduced to Tai Chi. And, you, and, and I just you know saw some of the Chinese people practicing in the park. And I loved that too because I love flowing. And as I said, in some ways, my, my whole path and career have been more like water and that water meanders. Water never goes in straight pathways unless humans channel it through pipes and canals. But water meanders, and so my life has been more like water. And and I mentioned too that my oh, for my wonderful professor um, John C. H. Wu, a, a visiting professor at Columbia University in New York, who taught me Taoism. That that became a lifelong inspiration. And of all the you know the five basic elements in the Taoist cosmology, water is the closest to the Tao because it 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 lies lowest and doesn't strive with other things and everything. So there's, there's a lot of messages here. So anyhow, yeah. And, and to be able to uh, yield and roll and, you know, I've had some, some other traumas in my life. I won't go into it now, but thank goodness for the healing that good friends have been able to be so supportive. Um, you know, the, the kids that have come to my, uh, my kids and, just I'm very thankful. And so you asked two questions. One was about thankfulness, gratitude. I think gratitude really, 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 I give thanks for the, th this magnolia tree that I can see right out um, of the deck door here in my little apartment. Every, I, I, and I have plants going. And my orchid, I have a couple of orchids. And like each time that they blossom, it's like a miracle to me, and I give thanks to them. I even wrote a poem giving thanks to one of my orchids. So gratitude is an important part of my practice. Now, your second question was you had another key concept, and I just got into associating. Yeah, unconditional love. Oh, my God. I even had a dream this morning about it. Maybe in the sometimes I've had precognizant dreams where something i dream about then comes the next day or whatever even places i've never been to i've seen them in a dream before and all so there's way more to life than the materialist assumptions give and that's what i'm trying to give witness to in my poems life events and experiences 
that just open up the eyes of wonder. So unconditional love, that was the message in the dream that, you know, love is is the way. That, I mean, it's trite, it's trivial, it's been said, but unconditional love is, yeah, um, there are different aspects to it. One has to do with unconditional love towards oneself because often the wounds, uh, we often, again, you, you said in the beginning, before we started the interview uh, that was recorded, um, everyone's voice is just as important in this world. And I believe that. In fact, the, the guy I did the, um, the book called The Healing Drum with uh, that I co-authored, I mean, it's, I'm, basically it's his story, my translation and my English writing. But he, he just said there was a proverb that the big drum has its voice and the little drum has its voice too. And they were equally important, like when the drum ensembles are playing. And so unconditional love for ourselves is sometimes the hardest for many people who are sensitive. Because often when people are hard toward others or negative and critical, it, it's often a projection of this internalized self, self-rejection, self-hatred, self-contempt, whatever that comes out of whatever, you know, feeling deficient, and then they pr- try to project that out onto others. So unconditional love for ourselves is really important, that with all my flaws, I still deserve love. At least I can accept myself as I am, accept my own funny self, accept my own flawed self. And then, you know, and, and then, yeah, unconditional love for others. It's so important if it comes spontaneously, and, and I think many spiritual teachings, of course, point us in this direction. But sometimes the spiritual teachings don't allow the full processing of the emotions, which then becomes like a spiritual bypass is the term that's been used. It's like anger serves survival. If someone's violated us, anger is normal. We shouldn't beat up on ourselves because anger comes up. And what we do with it is another thing. Explosive anger is harmful, harmful to self and harmful to others, but also repressed anger is harmful. So how can we feel appropriate anger and then choose appropriate action? I once saw a book um, by a psychologist who had studied the histories of um, 20th century nonviolent peacemakers, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Gandhi and all. And he, he was like, what are their common traits? According to that psychologist, some people may disagree with his analysis. The, the, one of their traits is they all experienced anger. But then they found ways. They were angry about the injustices, about the oppression of peoples, about, about the violence. And then they, were try, they tried to find ways to, to transform that anger to give, you know, intelligently to help serve the protection of human rights, to serve equality, to serve social justice, to serve peace. But without the anger, would they have had the fuel for it? So, you know, and I I read tons, I've read, you know, more in the past. Now I'm, I want to write more, but I'd still read. But so many spiritual teachings that put certain emotions as negative and certain emotions as positive. I think any emotion if it's distorted, if it's repressed, it comes out uh, as destructive. But they all serve survival, you know? Yes. Um, so, so at any rate, 
and the unconditional love comes in to accept ourselves. Yeah, we felt jealousy, we felt envy, we felt anger. We said some things in the past that, oh, how could I possibly said that? To, to have the unconditional for ourselves in that way. And, to, you know, and to realize also, like in, in Buddhist teachings, for example, you know, one of the, um, uh, the five um, abodes of the Buddha, you know, is compassion, which is, you know, but compassion arises spontaneously if we felt all the emotions and then also realize what in another Buddhist concept is dependent origination, the, the chains of cause and effects that led people to be there, you know, and, and led us to be where we were. We did usually, you know, if, I mean, given all things being equal, most of us, we've made our mistakes. And most other people make their mistakes, but it's coming out of all this conditioning, all the lack of good fortune, all the the abuse, the neglect, the trauma, the unhealed trauma. I think so much of the horrors in the world is partly from what unhealed trauma collectively has done. And there's, you know, there's there's way more to say, but I, I there's no time for it right now. But at any rate, the compassion arises for the suffering of humanity, and it doesn't mean we like. And condone everything that people do but to the extent possible unconditional love is to really really recognize all the interrelated multiple causes and effects that lead to certain outcomes and, and to how we ourselves have, have been in this life too i hope that's not too complex probably if i were not tired now, I'd even, <laughs> I'm talking too much, <laughs> I'd say it more simply and directly. <laughs> Here's one for you, Mitch. I've got one for you. Was when that, was, was the last time, when was the last time you felt totally at peace with yourself? Today, yesterday, I mean, totally at peace. It's funny. One of my good, good, good friends is originally from Thailand. And we've been friends for, you know, almost 17 years now. And, and uh, she was back in Thailand. And I've been sort of responding to her. I actually found a job opening for her. She might want to come back. And, and she's applied for it. And finally, you know, and so we're focused on that. I said, well, how are you doing? I said, I'm happy for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> and she and she said, "Oh, that's better than being un unhappy for no reason." <laughs> so maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe totally at peace is not quite the word. But <laughs> it's darn true, yeah. I'm gonna but, use that, know, totally, Mitch. I'm gonna so use that. There are moments. There are moments. I mean, even even. Um, you know, this morning I got up pretty early and I wanted to be really well rested for, for our interview because I wanted to honor the time that you're giving to this. And then, but then I had a lot on my mind. I was even, it was, I was working on something late last night. And so my mind was still, you know, I was writing something. My mind was still on it. And then I was not at peace with myself. And then I just, I said, oh, I want to sleep some more. I still have a couple more hours, but it's way too early. And then um, I, I looked at a text message that this friend in Thailand had sent, and she sort of gave some good advice. I said, oh, I was able to sleep. 
Yeah, I accept myself because I'm worried about my age and how long can I keep working so hard as I am. Why am I worried about that? So I then all of a sudden I found peace with myself and I fell asleep this morning again and had some dreams. And the one I just awakened to, I had just gotten this message about, well, love, it's it's through love, you know, through the unconditional love was the message that we, um, you know, that that we we can resolve that and and yeah we're we are imperfect and we're impermanent as as these embodied beings with this mind and this set of life circumstances and everything and and that's um for human beings that's a hard thing to come to terms with but we have no choice <laughs> exactly this is, this is the uh, <laughs> I mean, this is the existence we're born into <laughs> And there's got to be reasons for it. So at any rate, yeah, so there are moments of complete peace. And it's like I, you know, resilience is how fast do we bounce back from adversity. So I'll have my moments of maybe, <laughs> not maybe, I have my moments of, well, why did I do this choice? Why didn't I make that choice? I've still had dreams over the years about why did I resign from one great job? <laughs> But then it led to other things. And so, you know, it's like, in the, I'm still trying to get that job back in this dream. What's this work? And I say, no, but look at all else that followed from that, you know, <laughs> that wouldn't have happened. And then I get at peace again. So that's the resilience part. It's just, well, we bounce back. I'm still still working through that one, you know, because <laughs> in my fantasy, I could have already retired and had enough savings. If I, but then what would I do? So I'm happy again. <laughs> I'm I'm so happy that when I teach, other people feel better. I'm teaching, you know, right now, yoga, qigong. When I do the counseling, people can come to, um, you know, they, they solve their own problems. I'm not solving it for them. I'm just being a compassionate witness. I'm being there for them, being present, reflecting back, you know, what I'm hearing. And then people work it out. We all need that, you know. There was a, a Jewish philosopher, 20th century, Martin Buber. And there's a sentence that was translated into English from his original German writing that I love. And because he, one of his themes was um, validation, confirm that we all need someone to validate who we are, who we really are, who we fully are, you know, who really recognizes even. But the, the sentence is, it's from one human being to another that the heavenly bread of self-being is passed. It's from one human being to another that the heavenly bread of self-being is passed. Because we are relational beings. We, you know, we're born from a mother, uh, from the body of a mother. Uh, to the extent that we are securely attached in, in, you know, in the language of developmental psychology, that in the earliest part of life, we have a safe haven that is rel not perfect, but safe haven where our needs are recognized and responded to with care and compassion, whether we're wet, whether we're hungry, whether we're overtired, whether we're scared, that we are comforted, that our needs, our physical and emotional needs are met, and then, then we're guided. So the safe haven that we have early in life, and this is how I understand that boomer phrase, then becomes the secure base from which we can further explore out into the world. Whatever, you know, yes. to meet friends, to play with friends, to develop our physical, 
and emotional and artistic and scientific, whatever it is, athletic abilities. And as long as we can go back to that safe haven, you know, that life is a series of excursions. Um, and until we develop more security in ourselves, we become, you know, more secure in our own being. And so safe havens, and we seek closeness as, as infants. We need the closeness. Without the closeness, we don't survive. And, you know, um, uh, abandoned kids don't, don't do well. They don't develop normally. Um, and there's, there's, uh, there's research that psychopaths um, often come out of backgrounds of severe uh, neglect, that they just haven't formed any attachment with any human being, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and come, whereas people who are sort of impulsive and act out aggressively and violently often come from more abusive backgrounds. Not, not, but again, there are many mitigating factors, provided there's some helpful witnesses there. There's some advocates, there's someone, some protectors that come in life. So we all need community. And I think many, not all, but many indigenous cultures had a much deeper understanding of what life is really about than modern uh, capitalistic, um, competitive, individualistic uh, societies that have become so impersonal and commodifying, you know, everything, even to talk about human resources, it's human beings. And I have stories that I, I witnessed with this uh, um, a family I got to know very well when I was in Togo in West Africa for two years. They were from the Fulani people. Um, who were the traditional cattle herders and the, the, the uh, but they had all kinds of wonderful, wonderful, the way they live and what, what I learned from them was amazing. So, uh, do you want one quick story now of some, or yeah, do you have not it. time? All right. I'm going to oh, go I have for time it. for you. I have time. <laughs> so I, I wrote a poem about it, but I'm just going to say it off. I mean, I'm not going to say the poem. I don't have it in front of me. I don't memorize it, but. Basically, I got to know this family pretty well. They, were, they weren't even sending their kids to school, and I didn't speak their language, but they spoke three of the local African languages. I mean, they had spoke two other African languages as well as their own Fulani language. They spoke Kabia and Kodakoli, and they would never been to school a day in their lives, but they were already trilingual, at least, that I knew of. And, and they, you know, they picked up a few words of French. So I took one of my high school students with me, um, who, who translated, I mean, he spoke with me in French, I spoke with him in French, and then he translated into, I think, Kodakoli that they understood and they told him. And then, so, so, so he was there. So at any rate, they, they, we're talking about a compound with mud huts and thatched roofs and, you know, barefooted um, friends. And, and so once, this is the story about the difference between many traditional cultures and this Western culture. So, there was an older man came over to me I had never seen before. And they said, oh, this is our uncle. He, he wanders around the countryside. He, he visits different family members. We always host. And he came right up to me and he pointed to me. He said, my son, you've been neglecting me so long. And those clothes you're wearing, you stole them from me. And, you know, he was, he was tripping. I don't know. He was, you know, he was, he was, you know, he, and they just were standing by calmly and nodding and accepting and everything. So in my last year at Columbia, I had visited uh, with an um, abnormal psychology course. Uh, there had been a field trip to a, um, a, 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 a mental hospital, you know, a psychiatric hospital where they had. Oh, wow. 
and, and it was horrible because the uh, psychiatrist in charge, they had like this little empathy and they were bringing out people and they would describe ahead of time what their symptoms were, and, you know, and, and so someone was like labeled schizophrenic and, you know, paranoid and manic depressive. And sometimes they showed their symptoms, sometimes they didn't. And, and then he would get angry. Like, he, he, wanted, he wanted to like, they were specimens. They went, so I, I tried to tell my, my Fulani friends. So I, I told them, I said, you know, Rec, I, I'm so impressed that you welcome this, this uncle. They loved him. They accepted him. I, that you welcome him because back where I come from, there is these psychiatric hospitals where they separate people. And they say, oh, that's so cruel. Yeah. And I said, not only that, you guys are orphans. I know your parents died when you were fairly young. They were brothers. One of them was married and the two younger ones weren't. And, and so they were all farming together and herding their cattle. I said, back where you were, where I came from, often kids who didn't have their own parents would be separated from the family. They couldn't understand that. And then I said, also, you, you keep your elders with you. Where I came from, even they separate elders sometimes and put them in, you know, I mean, it was hard to translate, but my, my student did it well enough. You know, I put them in separate facilities where the families might visit them once in a while and so on. And, you know, th this African peasant, barefooted, uh, working hard, he had a lot of wisdom. He just shook his head. He said, with the elders, they do that. Whoever could do that are not human beings. Yes. That was, yeah. You know, so, and of course, there's a lot of compassion and humane people and families and, and they'll support. I mean, I'm not saying that it's all bad. No, not at all. But the fact is that the human bonds of solidarity, of compassion and inclusiveness, I mean, there's homelessness all around. I'm in this wealthy state of California. There are these homeless encampments all over the place here. It's sick. In this country that spends so much on waging war. Now I'm really ranting and getting worked up. <laughs> you know, but it's insane. And, and some, during this pandemic, I, I saw a podcast yesterday. It was, I don't know if the figures are exact, but they, the, during this pandemic, the wealthiest billionaires in the United States alone increased their wealth by three point nine trillion dollars trillion with a tr and that the the rest of the people the net loss of wealth was 3.7 trillion dollars this is what this podcast said i said what well i've seen other figures that are kind of close to that but we know that the wealth inequality has gotten greater and greater something is wrong with any society that can do that and can drop bombs, millions of dollars of bomb, you know, in foreign countries all over and have military bases all over and doesn't take care of the basic needs of the people. It's just, it's perverse. And, and to make it possible for families to stay together for, and I know I, I have friends in other countries too. I have a friend in Thailand who's having to, after like, working in a hotel kitchen and being promoted to a, what is it, a demi-chef, has to resign because they work, they don't give them vacation, they work the merciless hours and, and, and pay so little because tourism is down there. And I said, oh my God, and this is an honest, hardworking, intelligent person who has, you know, 
very ethical and honest. And all over the world, it's like that. We know the wealth inequality. So I'm ranting, but I saw in this Fulani people lots of examples of wisdom that's based in, in real unconditional love and acceptance. Even they had unconditional love and acceptance from this, this elder uncle who, you know, in this country would be diagnosed as delusional, might be given some kind of medication, which basically would just suppress all his symptoms. And who knows what trauma in his life or what head injury led to that, you know? They had, they had unconditional love and compassion like that. So I'm ranting, and I, I, I know my tone's changing now from all the laughter, but it's all part of life. <laughs> Bless you, know you what? Sabia. What it's, else? I've... What else do you want? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted was for you to be yourself, and you gave me yourself. All right. So what more can, what more can I ask for? I have, I have one more for you because. All right, all right. I'm listening right. to you, my friend. <laughs> I like this. What would you like your legacy to be when you feel and only when you feel? You got a lot of energy in you, Mitch. Yeah. Yeah. What would you like your that's... legacy to be? <laughs> There's a song. I used to do something. I've done a lot of stuff, as you've inferred, that um, I that there's a little there's something called the dances of universal peace and it's kind of a derivative from from sufism the mystical you know tradition and and it has this this is very simple all i ask of you is forever to remember me as loving you all I ask of you is forever to remember me as loving you. There's, an, there's another verse that was added to it, but it's in another language, but I could stop there. I saw your gesture. No, All I, ask I of like you it. Is forever I like it. To remember me as loving you. If only that, because that's the best gift we can give to anyone to be unconditionally loved. And with all my flaws and with all my, <laughs> uh, uh, what should I say, my meandering you don't have ways. Flaws, Mitch. <laughs> if that's my you legacy. You are who you are. Some human beings I've touched, that's the best gift. It's the gift of life itself. Is love exactly, and honestly, you know, I was involved with the peace movement, the, the civil rights movement, the environmental movement early in life. From high school, I was on picket lines for racial equality and to desegregate lunch counters in the United States. From high school in 1960, uh, and I in 1970, I worked on a on a project that combined concerns for the environmental crisis and the need for disarmament and making peace on earth so that all the nations of the world could put their resources to saving the planet, giving decent work, healthcare, education, housing, food to people, protecting the earth. My concern is precisely, I had wanted that to be part of, not my individual legacy, the legacy of my whole generation. I'm so concerned with the ongoing wars 
and the environmental destruction, the climate catastrophes, the, the depletion, you know, the UN says there were like 30 harvests left, 30 more years in which the, um, before the topsoils are exhausted unless regenerative agriculture is brought back. I had hoped my legacy would be to die in peace, that there's less war, less violence, more equality, more solidarity, and, and that the earth is going to be ongoing for all species. But species is, so that, I had hoped that would be my legacy, not mine individually, but collectively with so many other idealists of, you know, the generation of the 60s and so on. And, and, um, and now it's much humbler that, that like there'll be people, uh, I mean, I remember, you know, these people I said thanks to that they loved me. They, they gave me the love I needed in appropriate ways at the time I needed it. And there are many forms of love and, and um, you know, the, the, the unconditional love, which is like the divine love that, you know, when we, that, that's, that's really something when we can come to that. And then there's the love of mentors, of teachers, of therapists, the love of friends, the, the love of, you know, so many kinds of love. Yeah. So I'm, um, and, and hopefully, you know, I, I, that will be my legacy. And, you know, I thought, you know, when I was very young, I thought my writing is going to be my legacy. But, you know, it's that heart-to-heart connection that, um, you know, that, that's the most important. That's the most important. And, and um, yeah, so unconditional love. Yeah. And, and to be one, you know, to realize, to inspire others to, to um, treasure the, this precious gift of life. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like a precious gift, but my goodness gracious, we can't take any of it for granted. We never know what will happen. I've had plenty of hardships in my life, plenty of really difficult periods. And at this point, I'm just, I'm grateful for it all that at least I've come to, you know, through relatively intact so that I do have some positive skills and understanding and knowledge to share and some kindness to share. And, and I'm thankful that there are others who, who also give me those gifts. Cause we all need that. It's like, yeah. you know, like the, the plants need the good soil and the sunshine and enough rain and yeah. just the right balance. We all need, you know, good, um, Doses of that, and then this, you know, what's been happening during this um, COVID nineteen pandemic is um, so many of the the usual avenues for social interconnection have been reduced to some great degree for so many people. And you know, I realized the other week I haven't had it sat down together with another live human being for a meal in in a whole year now. And the scary thing is I started just taking that as, quote, normal. <laughs> but then I'm so thankful when I see you on the screen and hear your voice. I'm grateful. And, and I have these regular students who have been taking classes with me for years. All my teaching for the past year has been on Zoom. And I say, 
I'm thankful that at least I see them and they keep showing up week after week. And, you know, I guess they're thankful for me too for showing up week after week, yeah. you know, <laughs> keep it healthy enough to teach these yoga and Qigong and all this that I do and the Tai Chi and then, um, and my clients on the phone as well as sometime on Peter. So I'm just thankful for every little bit, but I do hope that we can have, you know, more, um, safe face-to-face and in-person gatherings and all the rest. But right now we're adapting to some unprecedented um, global conditions. So just while you can be in London, I'm here in Oakland, California, we're seeing each other, we're nodding, getting into a, this you know rhythmical dance yeah. together with the rhythm of the blood. That's a miracle. It's, it can be worldwide for anybody who has the, the appropriate technology, but at the same time, some of the, um, you know, I would normally get together with a friend or two during a week and, you know, sit down for lunch together, whatever. And um, it's just not happening this the, for whatever reason. So, yeah, but I'm thankful for whatever we do have. So at the same time, so I'm thankful to you for reaching See? out to me. My gosh, I, I feel You're it's welcome. a real privilege to meet you. <laughs> it was definitely a privilege to meet you, Mitch. Most definitely. I enjoyed every single moment of having the interview with you. And you gave me your knowledge, wisdom, your compassion and your gratitude and unconditional love for what you do. And and that's so important. I have one more question for you, Mitch. And it's just if I've had the privilege of interviewing you today and you abundantly given me your knowledge, like I said before. If anybody else would like to get in touch with you to know more about you, Mitch, where can they find you on all your social medias or emails or any platform that you would like to give out? Where can they find you? Well, I do have a website. It's breathe peacefully, breathe with an E at the end of breathe, the verb peacefully, as if it's one word, breathe peacefully at me.com. And um, let, let's see. <laughs> I have, uh, I th- there, there's a website from New York City, even though I'm on the West Coast, it's um, uh, that I'm offering um, counseling services and uh, classes through it also. And, um, oh God, how could I be drawing a, a blank here? Um, I think I sent you the link. It's the ancient way. Um uh, and and the ancient way and they can be find me there just they can they can you know do a online search for mitch hall and the ancient way may come up very soon and um i have a a, a live qigong class that most of the classes i'm teaching are through two yoga centers and a, a residential retirement center but i have my own live qigong class uh on saturday mornings at uh, 10.45 a.m. on Pacific time in the U.S. and Canada. So, you know, like London is eight hours ahead of me. So um, they they could, if they go to my website, they'll find information about it and they'll find an email, which is breathe peacefully. Oh, no, my website is breathepeacefully.com, not at me.com. That's my email. See, I'm all confused now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> breathepeacefully.com 
not briefpeacefullyonme.com is the email and briefpeacefully.com is my website and then the ancient way you can find me too so that'll be enough to get you can yeah. find me <laughs> Mitch, just, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. You've been such a great guest. Thank you. Well, thank yeah, you. I'll Sabi. put my hands together for you too. Put my hands together, and at my heart, I'll put one hand over my heart. And there's a Chinese way. <laughs> Bless you. You're wonderful. Yeah, you're wonderful. And, and I wish you the best with all your creative enterprises and keep keep bringing inspiration and hope and joy and your unconditional love because you give it abundantly. And at some point, I'd love to interview you. If I ever do a podcast, you'll be That'd one be of nice. my first to interview. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. That would be pretty cool, actually. <laughs> pretty cool. I've I've done quite a bit of interviewing in my day. I yeah. I mean, here we're saying goodbye, and I'm going on, but it, it, I should stop now. But I once got a grant to interview elders. Now I am in that category, but about what they learned about building peace in their lives, and and it was called um, "Peace Wisdom of the Elders: Multicultural Dialogue." So that's a whole other story. So I'm sorry, I'm adding on here. This is like. Um, the like addendum. <laughs> Bless you, my dear friend. Oh, and thank you, Mitch. Feel thank free you. to reach out if you ever have any questions for me or whatever. And、um, may you continue to flourish <laughs> and bring all the light and love that you bring to the world. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say my outro, Mitch, before I ask、okay. you to do your intro. Okay, so. <laughs> Rich, thank you again. He's laughing. I love it. I absolutely love it, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Ask People podcast. He's making me laugh. And please remember, you can subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and any other platform that you prefer listening to. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please remember, you can donate to the Ask People podcast by simply going to the Savvy Rocks website or just typing in PayPal. Dot forward slash us people podcast, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Stay happy, stay positive, and as always, please continue to be kind to one another. You know that it's worth it, cause nobody's perfect. Sometimes you need to say, I'm gonna be okay. okay. Made up my mind, now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. Time that you let go, time that you let go. Now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. You let go. Time that you let go. Now is my time to shine.
one day at a time Just enjoy the ride Open those eyes, see the light Ignite that fire inside it Let it breathe breath into life Push all your fears to the side Control your mind, it's all alright Enjoy your life, the joy is mine Commit to you, you got the tools Everything you do, you make the rules Sometimes you need